Hey folks, Brian here. I want to thank each and every one of you who has been listening to Confessions of an Arcade Addict, and I want to ask that if you haven't done so already, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to it. That helps other people find the podcast. I do have other things coming up, uh, various trips to arcades around the area, and things of that nature, and of course I'm going to try and go back to Chicago in 2022, and with your help, I can actually do it. So please, like, rate, review, and subscribe, and if you're able to, and you're inclined to do so, please contribute to the podcast in any way that you can. Uh, the easiest way is to go to anchor.fm slash coaa slash donate. I think that's the link. So if you could help me out, I would much appreciate it. And that keeps me motivated to keep this podcast rolling past 100 episodes. I do have plans to do that. So let's see what we can do later. here and this is episode 53 of the confessions of an arcade addict podcast uh let's see since last we left off at episode 52 uh i've been playing uh some games uh let's see uh there's one new uh shooter called uh neon sundown that i saw and i immediately bought it was fairly inexpensive and it's a really good game and it's hard too um, I'm having some fun playing it. Um, I'm still playing Operation Steel, um, uh, Battletech, and that's kind of it for now. Um, although, today, as a matter of fact, I'm hoping I've got the money to do this, but the venerable Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Gold Box games come out on Steam. So I'm going to buy them up, and I'm probably going to start playing them just for the heck of it, and maybe... Well, no, there's no maybe about it, but once I start streaming, I'm going to... That's going to be one of the things that I stream to um, the uh, the growing audience that I hope to have. So stay tuned for that. Um, let's see. I got my Sundays back. Uh, we hired someone new at the arcade. I've yet to meet her, but she will be working uh, openings on Saturdays and working on Sundays too, so... I don't have to work Sundays anymore except for the rotation shift at the hospital, so that's good news. I'll be able to actually rest on those days, and that's what I fully intend on doing. Uh, let's see, aside from that, nothing to do out of the ordinary. Um, just having 
you know, having some fun. My son is on spring break, so, you know, I'm taking care of him and looking after him when I can. And, you know, just the usual thing. So, and I checked emails, uh, nothing uh, going on. So, once again, if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, um, is there a game that you like that you want me to give the uh, possible... Are you experienced in time for some strategy treatment? Hey, just get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, there's a phone number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. I am on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and soon-to-be Twitch. I do actually have an Arcade Addict Brian account on Twitch, and once I get the proper equipment to start uh, streaming in earnest then I'm going to start doing so. So, you know, if you want to uh, just go on to twitch.tv slash arcadeaddictbrian, and that's where I will be. Um, I will be streaming all kinds of games, uh, console games, uh, arcade games, um, if I can get the proper setup, live location stuff and things of that nature so there'll be plenty of things to you know look at and so forth and of course i'll be interacting with you guys while i'm playing these games so i look forward to doing it and i'm hoping to build a a small audience at the very least i mean my main ambition is to you know get partnered with twitch of course and get to the point where i can actually stream like what five six hours a day five days a week and not have to uh, work three part-time jobs in order to do it. So, or at least at the very at the very least, partner those two things together, so that you know I could stream and you know work, just uh, you know work my streaming schedule around my work. So, we'll see. You know, we'll see if it actually becomes successful. You know, it's going to take time. It's going to take quite a bit of time, but. I would rather much put my time into doing streaming than almost anything else, aside from, of course, going out to different arcades and doing that kind of thing for the podcast. I'll probably even uh, do live recordings of uh, future episodes of the podcast. I'm not going to abandon it. So, you know, for those who had any concerns, rest, rest easy. I'm not giving this podcast up. At least not until I reach 100 episodes, and then we'll see where we go from there. So, um, let's see. On Instagram, I am at ArcadeAddictBrian. On Twitter, I am ArcadeAddict underscore B. Um, You go onto Facebook, search Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. And also, if you search Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, that's the discussion group that goes along with it. As a matter of fact, um, in the next couple of days, I'll put out a new question for you guys to answer, and maybe we can get some discussion going. Um, And, of course, Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So, once again, multiple ways of getting hold of the show. And I'm here for you guys. So, hey, get a hold of me, and let's get some interaction going. All right, let's get on to the show. I've got quite a bit to talk about, and the hour is already late, so let's get right to it. Top 10s. Top 10s. Maze games. Now, when I first started encountering maze games, 
it was just before Pac-Man came out in 1980. You know, we're talking 1979, um, you know, right in there, maybe even a couple in 78, but I can't remember them off, you know, just off of uh, the top of my head. But these were amongst the first to really branch out from the Space Invaders games and the various clones that came out in 78 and 79. And, you know, they offered something different. You know, um, we'll get into it as we go into the top tens. But as always, uh, my top tens are in no particular order. They just sort of came to me um, as I was thinking about it. And, you know, of course, I wrote out a little bit of a you know, little thoughts and descriptions for it. So let's get right to it. Okay, first one. Of course, I'm going to start with the one that really started the craze, Pac-Man. I remember when my home arcade got it, and people were playing it like crazy. I mean, for, I want to say, two or three months after they got it, I think they got it like in the summer of 80? It's either summer or fall of 80. I can't remember exactly, but... The whole thing was is that they were Pac-Man bootlegs. Um, The game was called Gobbler, even though it was plain to see it was Pac-Man. The ghost names were different. I think they were the actual Japanese names of the uh, ghosts. Um, But yeah, I mean, everything was the same. They were in these... They basically looked like they were converted from some other... uh, Uh, arcade game cabinet with a hole drilled in the middle and just this rather where you know wayward joystick put into the middle of it you know that's what i remember about it but yeah i mean this was the second game after space Invaders that really changed arcade gaming um i remember you know the rush to learn all the patterns to get to the ninth key you know, arguments over which pattern for which board was the best. I heard about the kill screen at level 255, and so on and so forth, you know, things like that. I mean, I enjoyed playing it, but the fact that the game started off so slow and only gradually sped up was a little bit of a letdown. I mean, I didn't really start getting into Pac-Man seriously until the first Apple stage, which was stage... Strawberry, uh, cherry, strawberry, two peaches, apple. So that's stage five. And that's when the speed really started ramping up. And that's when I felt most comfortable with the game because at the slower ones, I was more prone to make mistakes back then. Remember, when this game came out in 1980, I was 11 years old. So yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't like the slow speed. And then, you know, then I saw that, you know, as you were going through the first four to five levels, the speed of Pac-Man and the gameplay was speeding up gradually. So, you know, but, you know, it was just getting to those things that was a little tedious for me. But what do you expect? I was a hyperactive (laughs) 11-year-old. Okay. So, of course, that leads into Ms. Pac-Man. Um, I honestly believe that the Pac-Man franchise would not be what it is today without this game in it. I mean, we all know the history. I mean, I've read it. I've listened to podcasts about it, multiple ones. And it's basically the same story. You know, Midway 
had made this game without Namco's permission, but when it was released, the popularity and impact of it was so huge and so far-reaching that Namco was more or less forced to acknowledge acknowledge its existence and place it in the lexicon. Um, The game itself is the one I far prefer over its predecessor, and that's the truth. Uh, Four mazes instead of one, the player being forced not to rely as much on patterns as the ghosts are more random in their movements at the start of a level, the ghosts are more aggressive. Um, I felt this was a much better sequel than Super Pac-Man was when that came out uh, in 1982, but that was more because Namco was taking way too long to get it made. I mean... In the space, in the two years it took Namco to make Super Pac-Man and put it out, uh, Midway had come out with, what, two? Uh, they came out with, yeah, they came out with, uh, su- no, not Super Pac-Man, Pac-Man Plus, and then they had, then of course they put out Ms. Pac-Man right after that. So, you know, so yeah, there was a bit of friction between Midway and Namco. I mean, it's all in the, uh, it's all in you know the uh, history of the game. I mean, I've talked about it. Vic Sage talked about it. The Retroist talked about it. There are various uh, video game pundit videos on YouTube that talk about it, and you know the history's there. You know, all you gotta do is just you know run a search. You'll run into it. Um, let's see. But we will talk about Super Pac-Man now. Um, so we come to this game. Um, I like the game a lot. It's very different from Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man, but man, it can be brutal at times. I mean, the premise is still somewhat the same, but it's condensed it down. Um, you have to eat the keys to unlock the maze piece by piece, then eat the fruit in the maze and try to get bonus score by matching up the left icon with the right one when uh, they start uh, shifting uh, in the middle, the bottom middle of the maze. The ghosts are faster and way, way more aggressive in this game, and you find yourself spending at least half your time trying not to get not get trapped by them. That was one of the more difficult things about uh, just Super Pac-Man. I mean, of course, you could eat one of the superpower pellets and transform him into Super Pac-Man and be able to bust through the gates and to get eat the fruits and finish the level. Um, but as you got better at the game, you realized that you needed to save those power pellets for emergencies. Um, the best thing was was to just uh, lure the ghosts to the power pellets in traditional manner and, you know, change them, eat them, then eat the fruits and try to get off the level. And, of course, the more fruits you eat, the faster the ghosts get. To the point where Blinky's not the only one that has overdrive now. Pinky does too. And that that in itself made the game harder. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's still a fun game. I mean, I like I said, I set my all-time high score on Super Pac-Man at uh, the Underground Retrocade in West End, Illinois. And that was a lot of fun. So that's Super Pac-Man. So we move on to Junior Pac-Man. Uh, this game was a surprise when it came out in 1983. It was a perfect sequel to Ms. Pac-Man, and I loved the quote-unquote forbidden love story in the interludes it was very romeo and juliet-ish but cute um the gameplay is crazy because of the scrolling maze which made the size of the maze like i think three or four times normal size or at least uh horizontal size 
um, it didn't scroll, or did it scroll vertically? I can't remember now. I'd ha- I'm going to have to play a game of it just to remember. But, um, you know, we have a Turbo Junior Pac-Man at the arcade in Brighton, and the turbo speed does make the gameplay more interesting. Of course, you have a massive speed advantage, but the maze is so huge that, yeah, you can easily you know, trap yourself in, you know, in that game, then that's kind of what happened the last time I played Junior Pac-Man. Okay, enough of the Pac-Man franchise, let's move on to something else, which is Ladybug. Okay, I remember this game from the Rexall drugstore in the mall. Um, I used to watch Mark play it a lot, and I remember I would try to figure it out, but I couldn't quite grok it. I couldn't really understand it. And if I couldn't really make you know, progress or headway in a game, um, I would really lose interest quickly um, because, quite honestly, I didn't have a lot of money to spend on these games. Although by 1983, I'm now 14 years old and I have an actual allowance that my mother gives me. So, you know, I can still go to the arcade and play and play games. But yeah, I had to be circumspect about what I played. Um uh, let's see, I was much happier with Mr. Do, which is one of my all-time favorite games, but I will say that the ColecoVision port of Ladybug made the game easier to learn. There wasn't quite as much, uh, shall I say, intricacy to the game. It was a little bit simpler, a little easier to play. So yeah, that's Ladybug. Head on. Okay, this was the first maze game I ever saw. You know, um, I think the first game, first time I saw this game was the first year I started going to the James E. Strait shows during the summer, which I believe was the summer of 79, uh, the game, the year the game came out. Um, in some circles, it's better known by its Atari 2600 counterpart, which is Dodgem. Um, when I saw this game in arcades back in the day, I always played it, and I got to be pretty good at it, actually. Um, the arcade in Brighton had a head-on machine uh, back when they had games in what is now the party break area in the second floor slash loft area. Uh, and that's the last time I actually played a head-on machine. But yeah, I mean, head-on, crash, dodge them. You know, they're pretty much all the same game, but, you know, yeah, head-on was the actual original. Okay, moving on. Berserk and Frenzy, and those two games are tied. I could not choose between them. Uh, These games were just a different level of awesome when they came out in 1980 and 1982, respectively. Uh, The fast action, the the computer voices constantly taunting you, Evil Auto chasing you... Uh, the different boss levels on Frenzy, you know, both games were fantastic, and even the ColecoVision port of Frenzy was great. Uh, Stern really knocked it out of the park with these games. Uh, there is a Frenzy machine in the arcade, and they had a Berserk machine right to it ne- uh, years ago, but I think that machine got sold. Um, I still play that game every so often when I go to the arcade, either before uh, my work shift or if I'm just there to play games. Okay, moving on. Uh, Wizard of War. Uh, This game is always great to play. Um, It starts off slowly, but it gets faster and faster as you go. Uh, The wizard, of course, will be taunting you through the game. This was another game with electronic voice synthesis. And when you finally got him, it was certainly an event. Uh, The game got easier when 
uh, Tom Hirschfeld revealed the one-way areas in certain dungeons where the monsters would approach from just one direction. One of the one of the all-time classics, and certainly, definitely a uh, classic uh, maze game. And finally, Venture. This was one of the first games to buy, combine Dungeons and & Dragons and, and arcade games, though I truly got acquainted with the game through the ColecoVision port, which was pretty faithful to the original. Um, it was fun, but it was legitimately tough, especially by the third or fourth dungeon. Uh, by the time I actually played a venture uh, arcade game, there were uh, a couple of uh, differences that, of course, the ColecoVision port couldn't cover, but it, they were still, you know, that game was still really good. I think the last time I played an adventure, adventure arcade game, I think that was at uh, Galloping Ghost. Yeah, I believe that's where it was. And the, the honorable mentions, of which there are only two, um, Armor Attack and Targ slash Spectar. Those two games are pretty much the exact same game, they're just named differently, because I think they were put out by different uh, gaming companies at the time. So those are my top tens with honorable mentions. Uh, if you guys have any thoughts about that top 10 and you think there may be a game that you like that isn't on this top 10, hey, talk to me about it. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com. Okay, let's move right along to Arcade Rundown. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept it, is to make Stefan believe Thompson's information. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This state will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Arcade Rundown. Free Play Pinball Arcade, Fraser, Michigan. When I first started this podcast, I made a list of places in the greater Detroit area... Uh, that I wanted to check out for rundowns and reviews, and of course to have a little fun while I'm doing it. This place was one of the first on my list to visit, although it took me until March of 2021 to get over that way, after I was finally able to purchase a car and the pandemic restrictions had been lifted somewhat. Um, let's see... Uh, I'm trying to remember what the... Yeah, it was like late March of 2021, if I remember right. Um, it was a little late when I got there, about 9.30 in the evening or so, but I went in, paid the $20 entrance fee, and started playing games. As it says in the name, it's a pinball arcade first with quite a few machines available for play as of this writing, which was uh, February 6th of 2021. Uh, the number was 36 machines, but once I saw they had a baby Pac-Man, I focused on that game as far as pinball went. Um, and I played that until I started walking around the arcade to kind of scope it out because, you know, I thought, oh, I'm not going to stand here and watch and play uh, Baby Pac-Man all night. So uh, I start walking around, and I saw that they had an actual working Hercules pinball machine. I have not seen that machine since it was 10 years old, and it's basically the world's biggest pinball machine. And it was just as huge as I remember it to be. Um... You still have to pay to play that machine, which is a little touch disappointing, but, you know, in the end, I understand why. You know, that would be a really hard machine to make free play, and that machine is extremely, extremely rare. 
So yeah, no one's gonna mess with the uh, the innards of it to make it a free play machine. I get it. Um, but there was a nice mix of classic pinballs as well as the latest ones like from Stern and Jersey Jack. Um, at the time of this writing, they were celebrating getting a Rush pinball machine and running a promo for it, which is pretty cool. I've being a Rush fan since 1982. The arcade selection was decent, numbering at 28, and provided a nice counterpoint to the pinball machines. Uh, they rely heavily on the classics, which is more than fine with me. And as another counterpoint, they have foosball, skee-ball, tabletop, hockey, and electronic darts as well. They also have a full bar with beers on tap, wines, ciders, mixed drinks, hard seltzers, and soft drinks for the kids and non-drinkers. Uh, they do allow carry-in and order and dining, which is pretty cool. And there are more than a few places nearby to pick up food to eat or have it delivered. Um, also, they allow reservations for private events, sponsor pinball leagues and tournaments, and parties. I enjoyed myself there for sure, and I fully plan on going back there as time allows. Hopefully sometime this summer. Um, I do have plans on doing a Detroit-style arcade run, and I think this place is going to figure quite prominently in that run. Uh, there are other places in the area I have yet to visit, so I might hit those first and then finish off the day at free play. This place has something for everyone, and that's for sure. And that's free play uh, pinball arcade. Um, if you are a uh, patron of the place, you go there often, and you have a, your own opinion about it, hey, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. All right, let's move on to story time. Bodies are given life in the midst of nothingness. Existing where there is nothing is the meaning of the phrase, form is emptiness. That all things are provided for by nothingness is the meaning of the phrase, emptiness is form. One should not think that these are two separate things. Story time. Video gaming from an OG perspective. Okay, as you guys know by now, I'm an old man in my 50s, and I use quotes around the term old man, because God only knows there's some kids out there who think I'm ancient. <laughs> um, I was around video gaming from close to the inception. Um, I was hanging around in the arcades when Space Invaders kicked off. I played the legendary games when they first came out, like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong. I saw the impact of the Atari 2600 for years before I got my own system. I saw the slow effects of the crash of 1983, and as an aside, I really hate it when people who weren't even there try to say that it wasn't that bad. I was there, and as an avid video game player, it was bad. And I also saw the things that caused it. I have seen the rise of consoles, starting with the NES in 1985. Uh, I saw Nintendo stick their toe in the water, so to speak, when they released the Versus system in the arcades the year before. I saw the rise of home computers and how they took a piece of the gaming experience in the early to mid-80s. Uh, when the Genesis and the SNES came out, now you could have a high-quality gaming experience at home and the serious impact that had on arcades. By 1989 and 1990, uh, the arcades in my hometown started closing down one by one until there were only three. Um... And yeah, those were sad days for me because those places were 
key in my gaming runs and also those places made me friends and you know things like things of that nature they were just a big part of my life at the time um when i moved to florida in some ways it was like going in back time about seven to ten years arcades were still prevalent in the area i lived game cabinets were still in grocery and convenience stores and it was awesome (laughs) uh it was here that i saw the console wars heat up uh the rise and dominance of sony the rise and fall of sega and watched nintendo make both great strides and costly mistakes i saw the true rise of the pc as a gaming platform and watched the internet go from a mystical place only people with real computer skills were able to get to to become a true global phenomenon now there are so many choices in gaming uh you can do it online you can become a collector if you've got the money or you can go the emulation route uh, consoles have become true multimedia outlets as well as excellent gaming platforms. I've seen the resurgence of the video game arcade in various forms, and I am heartened by that. There are more choices than ever, and I'm here for, well, <laughs> most of it. Uh, ever since I got a job working at in an arcade, something I've wanted to do since I was 12, uh, it encourages me every time I see someone one half to one quarter of my age or younger playing Ms. Pac-Man and actually trying to figure it out or see a group of high school kids playing doubles on Dig Dug and having fun doing it. You know, seeing uh, a grade school kid getting pointers from his parents on how to play Wizard of War. I've seen all these things, and every time I see it, it makes me smile. This is a great time for classic arcades and video gaming in particular, and I hope and pray it continues. (laughs) And that's story time. Just a little bit of a state of the union slash hey you know i may not look it but yeah i was there for a good portion of what went down and you know i'm glad to see things that are going well today so yeah that's it for story time let's immediately pivot to are you experienced i'm too old for this Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Hope, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arsed in the heather, chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. Like you believe. We're not too old. Are you experienced? Gyrus. Okay, I mean, this game is one of the classics. Um, it, will, it provided a different challenge, even though it took heavily from some games that came before it. But let's uh, get right into it. I uh, have the information once again from Wikipedia, so let's get right into it. Gyrus is an arcade shoot-em-up game designed by Yoshiki Okamoto and released by Konami in 1983. Gyrus was initially licensed to Centuri in the United States for dedicated machines before Konami released their own self-distributed conversion kits for the game. Parker Brothers released contemporary ports for home systems. An enhanced version for the family computer disk system was released in 1988, which was released to the North American Nintendo Entertainment System in early 1989. 
The gameplay is similar to that of Galaga in a tube shooter format, with the player ship facing into a screen and able to move around the perimeter of an implicit circle. Stars come into view at the center of the screen and fly outward, giving the impression of the player ship moving through space. Gyrus's second and last game, Yoshiki Okamoto, designed for Konami after Time Pilot. Hmm, okay. <laughs> He's designed a few of my favorites. Uh, due to pay disputes, he was fired after the release of this game, and he soon joined Capcom, where he wrote 1942 and produced Street Fighter 2. And we will get to Street Fighter 2. It's, it's coming, folks. <laughs> okay, moving on to the gameplay. The graphics are displayed using a one-point perspective with the vanishing point in the center of the screen. The player's ship is restricted to a circumference around the edge of the screen and may move in either direction along this path. All of the shots from the player converge at the vanishing point. The majority of enemies are spaceships which must be destroyed to complete a level. They either appear from the center of the screen or from one of the edges, move in swirling patterns. Uh, they can shoot the player's ship or destroy it by contact. They hover near the center of the screen after completing their deployment pattern and occasionally fly outwards and shoot at the player. If not destroyed by the player, the enemy ships gradually fly away one by one. There are also several other types of enemies, satellites, asteroids, and laser beam generators. These appear intermittently and soon disappear of their own accord if not destroyed by the player. Satellites materialize in a group of three just in front of the player after the ordinary enemy ships have finished deployment. They gyrate in small circles and shoot at the player. If the player has the basic weapon when the satellites appear, the middle one will be a sun-like object. If destroyed, the player gets a better weapon. If the better weapon has already ga been gained, then all satellites are identical. Asteroids fly straight outwards from the center of the screen at regular intervals. They cannot be destroyed, but a small points bonus is given for shooting at them. I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. Uh, laser beam generators occasionally fly straight outwards from the center of the screen. They consist of two generator segments with a laser beam between them. Destroying either generator deactivates the beam. The player's ship is destroyed by contact with either the generators or the beam. The player begins the game at two warps to Neptune. After completing each level, the player is one warp closer to a planet. Each time a planet is reached, the player's ship is seen flying towards it, and then a short bonus round is played where the player can shoot enemy ships for bonus points without worrying about being destroyed by them. Each enemy destroyed in the bonus stage scores 100 uh, points each, or 10,000 for all 40. After reaching Neptune, then the player is then three warps from Uranus, and then progresses through Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, and finally Earth, taking three warps to reach each planet, and then repeat, repeats thereafter. Stage 1 and every tenth stage thereafter, the enemies do not fire on the player when entering the screen. After completing Earth's bonus stage, the, play, the player must travel through the very fast three warps to Neptune level before returning to the start of the game. Extra lives will be given, but vary from one machine to another. Uh, when over 999,990 points is scored, no more lives are given thereafter. Let's see, the music. The game's background music ends an electronic up-tempo up arrangement of Johann Sebastian Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, BWV565. This particular track is similar to Toccata, a rock arrangement by the UK-based instrumentalist group Sky. 
Gyrus uses stereo sound, which, according to the bonus material from Konami Arcade Classics, was achieved by utilizing discrete audio circuits. K, the ports. Parker Brothers released contemporary ports for the Atari 2600, Atari 5200, Atari 8-Bit Family, ColecoVision, and Commodore 64. Gyrus was remade for the family computer disk system in Japan, and later the Nintendo Entertainment System in North America, released by Konami's subsidiary Ultra Games. These versions include several major revisions. 1. The player can use a super phaser attack in addition to the normal guns, which cost energy. There are additional enemies, including boss fights when the player reaches each planet. Bonus stages are after each planet's boss is defeated for a chance to gain additional power-ups. There is a definite ending to the game. In the NES version, it's a brief text about the universe being at peace. In the FDS version, there is a full ending sequence with credits. Interesting. I did not know that. Uh, in addition to the satellites providing the usual double guns and bonus points, they can also provide extra phasers, a smart bomb, and even an extra life. Interesting. Instead of the arcade's 24 stages, there are 39, including Venus, Mercury, and the Sun. Uh, the player can enter the Konami code. Uh, you can enter that code at the title screen for extra lives, but it must be entered in reverse. Oh, so that's A, B, A, B, right, left, right, left, down, down, up, up. How about that? That's pretty slick. Okay, the reception. In Japan, Game Machine listed Gyrus on their July 1st, 1983 issue as being the seventh most successful table arcade unit of the month. Computer Games Magazine gave the ColecoVision and Home Computer conversions an A- rating, calling it, quote, a very good adaption of Galaga in the round arcade game, end quote. <laughs> okay, that's what I used to call Gyrus when I first saw it, but okay, let's move on. Legacy. The Famicom version of the game is included in the Majesco Entertainment TV game Konami Collector Series Arcade Advanced and was released for Japanese mobile phones in 2004. Gyrus is included in the compilation Konami's 80s Arcade Gallery, re released for both the arcade and PlayStation, known as Konami's 80s AC Special in Western Arcades and Konami Arcade Classics in the North American PlayStation version. Uh, it is also part of Konami's Collector Series Arcade Advance for the Game Boy Advance. The Konami Live plug-and-play PC controller includes an emulated gyrus with an online scoreboard, as well as five other Konami titles. Dance Dance Revolution Ultra Mix 2 contains a remix of the gyrus music as a playable song. Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, then we have a Dance Dance Revolution at, a, at the arcade. Hmm, I wonder. Okay, uh, Clones. A bootleg arcade version exists with the name Venus. Gyrus was cloned as a minigame in the game's Grand Theft Auto San Andreas named They Crawled from Uranus. <laughs> I think they were trying to say Uranus, but okay. And Contra Legacy of War. Uh, let's see, the record of the game. Uh, world record, actually. The movie Cannon Arm and the Arcade Quest follows the current world record holder, Kim Cannon Arm uh, Kopka and friends in Kim's attempt to set a new world record. Kim Cannonarm Kopka sets the record at 70,736,950 points during a game of 62 hours and 23 minutes in the summer of 2019. I'm going to have to see if I can find some information on that. Okay, and that's, uh, that's all the information that they have on Gyrus. My experiences with it. 
okay, this game at the time I called at the at the back in the day. I called it Galaga in the round. It was great. Um, the first time I encountered it was at the Bolarama Game Room, then Spanky's, then the News Corner, and Milford Rec shortly after that. Uh, this was another game that Mark and I would compete at, but he was way better at it than I was. The music and sound effects matched the gameplay perfectly, especially when you started getting close to Earth and the action really sped up. The arcade in Brighton has a gyrus machine. I played it on February 19th and got a score of 210,000, which is not bad for a game I haven't played in years. The problem is that I get really, really serious playing this game, unlike Galaga, which I can basically cruise through until like level 50 or so. Okay, that's Gyrus, and we will pivot right away to time for some strategy. Time for some strategy. Alright, I'm only passable at this game, but I will share what I know. Uh, each of the formations that come in grant a progressive bonus if you shoot them all. It's better to do this early in the game because as you advance through the planets, it becomes more and more difficult to do so. Uh, let's see, get the double firepower as soon as you can and do your best to keep it. It helps in many ways, including being able to destroy the enemy fighters as they sit in a circular formation in the distance, something you cannot do with single shots. Uh, the challenging stages are where you make the most, most points as you get a bonus of 1,000 points for destroying each of the formations and then a bonus of 10,000 10, points for shooting them all, like in Galaga. The bonus for each formation progresses for each challenging stage as well, so it behooves you to learn the patterns of the bonus stages. The closer you get to Earth, the more frenetic the pace of the game becomes. As formations come in at the start of the stage, do your best to thin out their numbers as they can overwhelm you if you let too many of them come at you on the attack. I think I got to Earth only a few times in all the years I've played this game. That should tell you how hard the game becomes as you progress in it. And those are the few tips that I have for that game. <laughs> okay, any thoughts, questions, comments? You know what to do arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. And that's pretty much it for this short show. Uh, looking forward to episode number 54. I have an arcade review. I have a our experience and time for some strategy about another one of my favorite games. I have Home Systems. I have the Silver Ball. And I do have an On the Road segment also. So this is pretty much jam-packed and full of information for you. So... Hopefully I could get this episode up in the coming days, probably end of the week maybe, and then I'll turn right around and record episode 54 and do the same thing. So once again, until next time, this is Brian saying have fun out there, good gaming, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at Incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of the Arcade Addict Podcast. See you then. <laughs>